Welcome back to Romance Ever After, the podcast where we talk about romantic comedies exclusively with Romancelandia. It is I, your host, Allie Parker. Today is going to be really, really fun because I'm talking with Denise Williams. Denise wrote her first book in the second grade, I Hate You, and its sequel, I Still Hate You. Featured a tough, funny heroine, a quirky hero, witty banter, and a dragon. Minus the dragons, these are still the books she likes to write. After pending these early works, she finished second grade and eventually earned a PhD. A photographer, she loves to capture moments, whether through the written word, research, or images. A diversity trainer and co-creator of a women's empowerment group, she is dedicated to developing flawed, multi-dimensional characters who struggle with those issues impacting real women. After growing up a military brat around the world and across the country, Denise now lives in Iowa with her husband, son, and two ornery shih tzus who think they own the house. Like her character, she enjoys bad puns and good cake. Her debut book, How to Fail at Flirting, is out December 1st, 2020. Hi, Denise. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, thanks so much for being here. I'm so excited to like talk to you and not just be on a panel with you. <laughs> Oh, there's that. <laughs> I feel like there's so many people that I talked to on Twitter for so long whose faces I never actually saw. And so. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And like, I'm like super reluctant to post my face a lot. So like when people see me now, when I'm doing this, they're like, oh my God, you are a real human being. Like, yes, <laughs> yes I am. It's not just a Apple emoji. Like I am a person who exists in the world. Um, yeah. Does that ever make you one time to do with this video chat and just put the emoji on like a Mac? <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's tempting. I won't lie. And this, I have a Mac, so I could probably do that. Um, but like, you know what? You already see this visage. We all, we all deserve to see it. Um, it's true. And see it's true. How, how weird I am uh, and how awkward I am. But okay. Anyways, enough about hidden faces on the internet. Let's talk about what we're here to talk about, romantic comedies. Um, hidden faces on the internet. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Oh my gosh. Yes. That's going to be very relevant to today's movie. But first, let's talk about your personal journey with romantic comedies. I'm going to assume you love them because you're talking to me. <laughs> I do love them. Always have. Um, and I don't even remember the first ones I saw but those are always the movies I have gravitated, gravitated toward. Um, my DVD collection is somewhere in the basement because I haven't touched it since streaming really became a thing. But like 80% <laughs> of that are romantic comedies. And I remember back to the ones of like my teenage years that I just thought were the epitome of everything, even though they were super problematic, um, <laughs> of thinking like... Um, She's all that and oh God, yes. <laughs> uh, drive me crazy is my absolute favorite one, which is, I think, a, a dark horse for night. <laughs> I, I love that one too. Um, I think, I think that's where my birth of like the, the growing up next door to the person you fall in love with. I think that's where my love of that trope came from. Also the, like, I mean, he's kind of a cinnamon roll, like a little like dark and crusty and I guess that <laughs> dark isn't part of the cinnamon roll, but you know, then heart of gold underneath and. Well, like, you know, if this, if it's like extra cinnamon gooey, that that's the dark part, that, that right there. That is the dark part. And it weaves through cause you gotta have depth. Mm -hmm. Adrian, mm -hmm. I can't pronounce his last name. Um, <laughs> uh, so it doesn't really matter, I guess. But, uh, you know, I love those. And I loved the possibility in them 
that, um, you know, that, that love was going to happen, that there was the happily ever after. I don't know if I thought about it in those terms at that time, um, mm-hmm. but that it was something I could watch and it was, I was going to be happy at the end of it, but also that for that moment, I could see myself in a love story when I didn't, even though there were all white people and <laughs> that we'll get into that later. I'm sure um, <laughs> this idea that I could watch this love story and fall into it. And I'm somebody who's always loved love, but who was not always in relationships or dating or, or having that. And so it was sort of that vision of that, oh, what if, um, and so, yeah, I always love those movies. I kind of chuckle now because I actually took a class on romantic comedies in college. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was a one hour seminar about communi- intimate communication. And the professor taught it by having us watch um, romantic comedies, romantic movies. Mm-hmm. And so every week we had homework and where we would watch them in class. And some were very like popular, well-known ones and some were kind of obscure. Uh, but the whole class was on watching um, rom-coms, which I thought was so fun as a teaching tool yeah and I'd kind of forgotten about that class until I ran into the professor a few years ago and he recognized me he's like you were in my class in 2002 and I was like who are you sir (laughs) (laughs) but then it kind of came back and I was like okay so there's a lot to like learn about communication and relationships and anyway all of that so yes long 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 story short of rom-com movies that's what I love Um, I like rom-com books too I think I have a lot of thoughts on the rom-com label for books which we'll probably get into later too Mm -hmm. Uh, but again it's that idea that I can be happy and really just see myself in in a love story is the thing for me that is so touching about them that's cool no I get that like the groundingness of it seeing reading it is one thing but like seeing it in action is a whole nother vessel and you know, it helps to, it helps gives that completeness feeling just a little bit more than when you're reading it. With that in mind, let's talk about tropes because tropes are the engines of movies and books, uh, romance novels, in my opinion. Um, And I feel like, you know, sometimes there are tropes that I like to see versus read. Um, And I was, I was just wondering, like, do you have any favorite tropes that they work better for you in books versus movies? And just to complicate it further for you, does it matter if you're writing it yourself? Good question. Um, I am a sucker for enemies to lovers and it does not matter. That, like if it was an enemies to lovers painting, I'd probably be down for that too. Um, so <laughs> whether it's reading it, I'm attempting to write one right now, which is a lot of fun. I haven't done that before. Um, or, or it's in a movie and I'm watching it. I just love the idea of going from really clashing with somebody because I don't want like just miscommunication. Like I want people to actively dislike each other Um, (laughs) um, to go to love. That is, is my favorite. And maybe it's just because I'm a contentious person who has a lot of enemies. I don't know. Um, But I, I I find that hard to believe. You're so sweet. I find it hard to believe you're contentious. (laughs) Oh, I got you fooled. No, I'm just kidding. Um, Um, so yeah, enemies to lovers across the board. I really like, I find that, um, friends to lovers works better for me when I'm watching it versus reading it, um, or writing it. I like it in both places and there are lovely, like wonderful stories that are friends to lovers, but sometimes I'm just like, I don't know. I want to see the chemistry a little faster, speed it up. Mm -hmm. Um, and so in a film, I, I feel like I can see that more. I don't know why that is. Well, yeah, for the chemistry, especially with friends to lovers, you're you're looking for that like underlying tension of the we are attracted to each other, but we're in our safe places. Yeah. And so you're like you're looking for 
when when it's visual you can see that like they touch each other the way they look at each other and writing that in is probably a little bit more difficult than like actually having the actors who do a lot of work especially in romantic comedies to carry that like subtext along um in terms of yeah what's easier to write um I I'm not sure my first book is just coming out and so I've written a few written one other and then have started a few others but I didn't actually write any full length books before this first one so I'm still kind of new to the authoring game um and so I I'm excited about writing enemies to lovers I do have a friend I just said that but I have like a friends to lovers one I'm working on too uh and so I think it's fun to try the different tropes and just see what fits the fits the story and like fits the characters cool cool okay all right so that's 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 what you like. Let's let's talk about the movie you chose for us to watch today. Um, <laughs> so I am going to apologize ahead of time. I am not a fan of this movie. <laughs> I, I I have I have feelings about Nora Ephron, and, and I'm sure I'll cover some of them today. Um, but I I. I I watched this one a couple of times, of course, to get ready for this, and I, I the feelings are still there. I, <laughs> <laughs> if you want to talk, this is not an enemies to lovers romance between me and this movie. So I <laughs> I, I will be as fair as possible as I can. But um, with that with that preface, today we're talking about you've got mail. Uh, I'm guessing this is a favorite of yours. Yes. Cool. Um, so a little bit of background of this movie. So like I said, this movie is directed by Nora Ephron. It was written by her and her sister Delia. Um, if you're unfamiliar with Nora Ephron, she was a journalist who turned into a screenwriter, who turned into a director. Uh, she has like kind of this long history of just like being, having her hat had in many pots but like her parents were romantic comedy writers they wrote desk set which is actually one of my favorite rom-coms um which is also an enemies to lovers which is kind of funny um and she has like this long story history she's known as being like kind of the savior of rom-coms i like to differ on that note but um she has like this she has like this very clear vision of things like New York. Like I like as a director, I love her because she has a very clear vision of like what she's doing. But I digress. Um, this, the movie itself is based on uh, the shop around the corner, which is actually based on a Hungarian, I think it's a Hungarian play. So the shop around the corner has been adapted so many times. Um, it's actually been most famously adapted as well into a Broadway play called She Loves Me. And the recording of the most recent recording of that is actually up on broadway.com right now. And it has the guy who starred in Chuck and um, I can't remember what her name is, but two really delightful actors playing the lead roles. So that's another way to take in the shop around the corner if you're interested in not watching this movie, which I highly recommend, but that's just me. Um, <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Okay, so that's enough about the background of this movie. Let's talk about You've Got Mail. So the movie opens up with this really, uh, it looks like an AutoCAD um, uh, drawing of, yeah, rendering. Thank you. That's the word. Rendering of New York City. Uh, and, you know, at the time for 1998, definitely ahead of its game. Uh, but in 2020, it looks like something that your kid made on their iPad. 
Um, and so we get, we open up with, uh, we get Kathleen Kelly, who is waking up. She has her boyfriend, Frank, who's there just like ranting at her, like about why technology is awful and her and her her computer, which she just absolutely abhors. And, you know, he leaves for the day. And then Kathleen is like, oh, okay, he's gone. I can go run off and do what I really want to do. And she opens up her MacBook, Mac PowerBook, such a throwback piece of technology right there. Yes. Uh, <laughs> um, she opens it up and she logs on to AOL with her ID shop girl. And, you know, we hear, you've got mail. And she has an email there from NY152. And it's like, you know, this really like nice long email and it's clear that they have a relationship. Um, but, you know, it's an anonymous relationship. And, you know, he's talking about like he would get her a bouquet full of pencils and <laughs> freshly sharpened pencils and you know we've kind of listened to the to the voiceover and it flashes to who we assume to be NY52 which is Tom Hanks um playing Joe Fox and you know we weirdly young Tom Hanks that was an <laughs> oddity to see that today well imagine if you watched uh Sleepless in Seattle he would be even younger <laughs> I actually hated Sleepless in Seattle oh yay <laughs> Okay, so we can agree there. <laughs> we can agree there. Um, but yeah, uh, so yes, oddly young Tom Hanks. Uh, he's in his, we see his morning routine. He has his girlfriend, Patricia, who, <laughs> who later on he says, Patricia makes coffee nervous, which I think is a great line and a great description of Parker Posey playing Patricia, just futzing around with this uh, espresso machine. And, you know, he opens, he's sitting there like kind of quietly. And once Patricia leaves, he opens up his computer, which I thought was another thing, uh, another piece of characterization. And again, the oddly specific way that Nora Ephron is he has a PC it's an IBM I think it's a ThinkPad I can't remember um but like he has a PC and Shop Girl has a Mac so going even all the way back to 1998 <laughs> we have characterizations of PC people and Mac people um <laughs> That's uh, <real>. <laughs> it's real it is uh so he opens up and we see this he's looking he logs in and he's of course, NY52, and he has an email from Shop Girl. And she, like, you know, has this, like, wonderfully lyrical, you know, I like to start our conversation, our, our emails, like, we're in the middle of a conversation. And, you know, she's painting this, like, glorious picture of life in New York. And I like that when we get this, like, morning montage really going is when they, we turn on the cranberries, um, which <laughs> at that time, that song was, like, in every trailer and in every movie. And, but it and it evoked like such a feeling of like happiness and completeness. And, you know, as we're listening to her voiceover and his voiceover, and we watch them go into their days. Uh, Kathleen happens to run the shop around the corner, uh, an homage to obviously the original property it's sort of based on. Uh, she runs a little children's bookstore uh, and she has these three employees. Two of them are obviously like these kind of young people. And then we have the older Birdie who 
I think really runs the store because when Birdie walks in, she's like, okay, it's time to open up. Like, is Kathleen the boss? He knows the money. Yeah. (laughs) Is Kathleen the boss or is Birdie the boss? Like, I I have some questions about Birdie, but we'll talk about Birdie a little bit later. And so, yeah, she knows the money. She knows everything. And, you know, they run this like nice little, uh, nice little bookstore and it's all nice and cozy and it's all wood. And Kathleen obviously has this like very specific vision for this is her life you know this is the shop that her mother ran and she took it over and this is like her memory of her mother and then we've got joe fox on the other hand who's walking into this like very large industrial space with his assistant who is dave chappelle um had forgotten about that (laughs) i i had too and you know what's really funny about this so dave chappelle had originally um had a been offered a role in forrest gump and he turned it down and he like instantly regretted turning it down because of course Forrest Gump went on to be like such a huge huge, huge movie um so like he jumped at the first chance he could to like get in on a movie with Tom Hanks again and so that's how he ended up this the assistant in this movie like he was the first person they called and he huh. said yes uh so yeah so so I guess he's not his assistant I guess he's like his friend but like I don't know. I, I, I wondered if he was the general manager for the store or I like a, a I don't VP know. of something. Or like a regional VP. I don't know. I, it's really confusing to me because for a person who apparently like basically owns a book, a major book chain, he spends a lot of time at this one store on the Upper West Side. Like, I don't understand that, but. And the, sto- the, the superstore is like the equivalent of like a Barnes and Noble or back in the day, like a Borders. Like it's. Yeah multi-level and just a huge bookstore I did watch that last night and I made a note like what is his job what is Dave Chappelle's job because he's managing construction but then he's also like managing people on the floor and then and then like helping him manage his life which is a whole other story I mean rom-com best friend has to do that anyway that's just part of the rules but yes (laughs) yeah so it's yeah exactly so it's very confusing as to what his actual job is but there he is uh helping him out and they're talking about like they're opening this new brand new store which is right around the corner from the shop and uh you know things are going good and he's kind of like you know, in his head, um, you know, kind of really enjoying his morning email from Shop Girl. And, you know, he says some, uh, Dave Chappelle, Dave Chappelle says something about it. And he's like, uh, oh, no, I, I'm not marrying Patricia. And that's when he says the line about she makes coffee nervous. Um, he's like, we, I like my life the way it is with Patricia. I love her, but I am not marrying that woman, Um, which is kind of sad, actually, if you think about it. Although later you meet his family and see like the multiple levels of divorce and marriage has gone bad. and Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, and that's actually kind of where we go. We go from that scene to him with his grandfather his and his father and they are just having the grossest conversation about putting bookstores out of business they're like literally celebrating forcing bookstores to close they're like comically evil about it too like there's no like cold calculating like business evil it's just like Mr. Burns finger clenching like (laughs) yeah that kind of really and and Joe participates in it too, which makes it so hard for me to root for him 
as a person because he's like oh we put another bookstore out of business around the corner from one of our shops and they're like ha, 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 ha. like they, they, they maniacally laugh about it i so that's part of the reason why i have a problem with this movie like, i will not defend the maniacalness i think for me it was so i don't know about back in the day but today i looked at it and i was like that's so like over the top evil yeah. And I honestly would have had a harder time if they were like, well, who cares about them? And it's all about profits and da, 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 like a, a business mindset. Mm -hmm. But it was like so evil. And then the grandfather has this like whimsical little moment where he's like, oh, I yeah. know that shop. And she was yeah. lovely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because they start talking about uh, the new bookstore. And he mentions that the only competition is like a mystery bookstore and a children's bookstore. And I completely forgot, especially in New York, they had like very, very specific bookstores. Um, and in this case, uh, yeah, there was a mystery bookstore and this children's bookstore. And the grandfather has the very whimsical memory about Kathleen's mom. He's like, I think I knew her. I think I dated her. If not dated her, I wrote her letters, which is which is very sweet. Um, he's like, you know, I had she was essentially like he had a thing for her mom. And it I wish, I wish on some respect, like we had more than just that throwaway line. Like, I wish we maybe had found some of those letters or there was a conversation with Bertie, but like because he repeats it a couple of times. Like we hear him say that line in a few different places. Yeah. And you don't see the letters. And I also wondered, is that a throwback? Was the shop around the corner uh, a pistolary book? Was there letter writing in that? Like, was that just a throwback to that? Yeah, I mean, it could be. Yeah, so there was for the act. So the shop around the corner in the play, the, the play in the movie, basically what happens is there are two people who work in a shop and uh, she and Kathleen's character basically comes in and kind of, usurps the Joe Fox character's position um, because she's such a good saleswoman and the Joe Fox character actually wants to run the store but his manager is kind of being disrespectful of him and so they and so when she comes in that's where we get our enemies friction like mm -hmm. they don't they don't really trust each other or respect each other in the store however they both have taken they both had start writing to each other through an ad that they found in the newspaper and so they have this love that blooms through epistolary yeah. because of that, um, while having this like very present enemies connection. And then, you know, it all works out in the end. He gets to be made manager and she stays working in the shop and they become better friends. Um, they There's even like that same scene that we'll see later where he's supposed to meet her and he sees that it's her, but she doesn't know it's him. So mm -hmm. he just goes in and he pretends that, you know, the, the same scene that essentially happens here. Like it's like a whole friction scene. And she thinks that she stood up and at the end of the movie, uh, he lets on that it's actually him. He's the person who's writing it. Uh, so that's that's how they come together. But anyway, so yes, that is the connection with the actual original movie. Um, however, we don't get any pickup of that whole grandfather wrote her letters thing in this movie, other than the fact that he mentions it a couple of times. Um, so that's that. Uh, so we go from there to uh, Kathleen realizing that there's a Fox Books that's moving into her neighborhood. And you know what? She's like, she's really upbeat about it. 
Um, she thinks that she'll be okay. She, they have customers who will come in. It's not a problem. But we see her at dinner with her boyfriend, Frank, who is played by uh, Greg Kinnear. And he is just the epitome of just everything. Erudite. Yeah. He's erudite in human form. <laughs> he's erudite and he's a Luddite. And he like, he just... He buys all these typewriters. I swear to God, if a man bought that many typewriters and just set them on my kitchen table, I I like typewriters, but I would murder him. Especially, he doesn't live with me. We're not married, and he just keeps bringing that shit into my house. I'm sorry. <laughs> He's no. so pretentious. It's just, Greg Kinnear did an excellent job in that this character is just so, not even lovable, but just like, Tolerably of his own ass. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes, he is tolerably pretentious. Um, and he has like this whole this whole like naivete about like how if they like stand up against the against the big bookstore, they can demolish the company. And he says this really pretentious line about like you are the you are a lone reed against like the powers of ca- capitalism or some the winds sort of, of capitalism maybe or something yeah something some crap like that and she's she kind of like considers it and she's like yeah yeah i am um and so from there we go and then we get to see a little bit more of an intimate vision of joe fox because so far we've seen him as the inattentive boyfriend and the capitalist pig like those are the two those are the two portraits we have of Joe so far but we know he has this side of him that's a little bit more personable because we've heard these voiceovers of his letters where he's uh it, i mean we 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 want to know who is this guy who would send the bouquet of freshly sharpened pencils like there's a reason why our shop girl is still talking to him so we get to Joe is at his boat and here shows up his his nephew, no, his brother and his aunt. Yeah, who were like four and seven. <laughs> yeah, they're children. Um, and along with them comes, uh, I guess, his brother's mother, who is his father's, I guess, soon-to-be fifth wife, I guess. Um, and she totes along with her nanny Maureen, who's freshly getting divorced herself. There are so many, like, little, little bits of, like, plot around here that are just like we just it's flotsam and jotsam so much of it I bet you there's like a whole another movie on the cutting room floor that's like four hours long um I know Nanny Maureen has one of the best lines I think I've ever heard which is he said like I'm getting divorced she's like oh I'm sorry and she's like it's okay never marry a man who lies (laughs) struck me as funny funny last night when I rewatched this it struck me funny when I was a kid and saw this for the first time yeah and she's like kind of like laughing like oh well like yeah never it's my fault never marry a man who lies (laughs) (laughs) and we're all just kind of looking at her like um, okay, kids over here, away from the weird lady. Uh, and so I was thinking that's advice that many of my friends and myself could have used at different points in our life. <laughs> <laughs> it's very true. It's very true. Never marry a man who lies. Um, 
so yeah so we go from there and he has like this day with the kids they're going to i guess coney island they're going to a street fair they're getting balloons and fish and playing games and you know as they're having this day they're walking around the upper west side and they see that there's a sign out front of the shop around the corner that says that the story lady's there and the kids want to of course want to go see the story lady and joe knowing what's about to happen in his professional life he's hesitant but he's like okay anything for the kids right so they go in and there's Kathleen just doing her best story lady read in her little damsel cap and reading the book and just like everybody's in awe of her and enjoying it and he's okay I have to pause there because one thing that really did bother me as an adult and a parent watching that scene is she (laughs) doesn't show the pictures to the kids (laughs) like she's doing story time for young children but she's just reading it. She's not like, <laughs> her turn to show them the pictures. And I don't know why that struck me, but it really did on this view. You know, okay. So maybe it's just me. I just kind of assumed that the book didn't have pictures, which I know for story time, you probably should go with a book with pictures, but I just assumed because she didn't turn them that it didn't have any pictures in it. But, but here's my other thought. Okay, I guess I took a lot of issue with this scene that's now <laughs> coming back to me is they scan the kids and all of the children are wrapped, which shows us that, you know, the heroine is this great storyteller, good reader, the book is good, mm-hmm. whatever. But the kids vary widely in age. Like there's like three-year-olds and a kid who looks like he's about to grow a mustache. <laughs> so, and they're all wrapped at the same story, which I'm also like, you don't read the same book to a three-year-old and a 14-year-old probably okay. <laughs> and hold their attention. Okay, true. I will give it's you It's a minor that. thing. It doesn't affect the book. <laughs> no, but I will give you that. I will definitely give you that. The The age range for the kids is very wide. Um, and yeah, that did, that did not make sense. Um, but then she finishes up story time and the kids have like picked up like a bunch of books that they want to get and they go up to the counter and then we have like this great moment where like Kathleen is checking them out and Joe is there with the kids and she's like just having having chat with them and he, you know he's just like I, it's just Joe not actually giving up his actual name because he doesn't want her to know who he is and he's talking to she's talking to the kids and she's like is and is this your little girl she's like no I'm his aunt and she's like what (laughs) (laughs) and I suppose that this guy is what your uncle your grandfather (laughs) it's like no I'm his brother and he says like this this is the picture of a modern family I guess and you know they're they're kind of having like this charming back and forth and it seems like you could see like there's some chemistry there and he's kind of like bemused and charmed by her you know she still doesn't know who he is but he knows who she is that's when the bookstore uh opening up the fox bookstore opening up comes up and little matt uh the um, the little brother he says i know how to spell fox f-o-x <laughs> <laughs> and so she goes uh do you know how to spell dog too f-o-x <laughs> that was adorable <laughs> it is it is the f-o-x is is great and you know as and so that's when joe starts to get freaked out because he thinks like the jig is about to be up so we got to get out of here um and he's taking the kids out the door and he and she goes one last one do you know how to spell cat 
yeah, I felt like. <laughs> <laughs> and he's just like ushering them out the door before she actually finds out who he is. So he, so we've had our first like in-person meet and this is one of those occasions again where she does not know who he is, but he knows who she is. And that's going to be a runner for this whole entire movie. Um, well, she, at that point, he doesn't know she's, well, she knows, he knows she's the owner of the store. She doesn't know who she is online yet. Yes. Yes. He doesn't know who she is online. So they're both in the dark there. However, yeah. like for he the knows last- She owns the store. Yeah. But for like the last half of the movie, he knows everything about her and she knows only one thing about him. Um, but the very next scene after- the bookstore they go to a party which is so indicative of Nora Ephron's vision of New York because this is the whitest upper middle class party oh, 100%, 100%. <laughs> um and it's funny too because you know we get the sense especially in the earlier parts of the story that you know Kathleen is supposed to be just you know a small business owner who she has money but she doesn't have a lot she's living her life meanwhile he's supposed to be like this multi-millionaire guy who has he's a lot of money he's upper echelon he's upper class but they are invited to the exact same party and nobody feels like they don't belong in that room I did get the sense it was a publishing related party because her um the girl Parker Posey is a publish is in book publishing, which I thought as I was listening, I was like, oh, look at all these references I get now that I didn't get the first time they watched. <laughs> um, and so then the boyfriend, um, Greg Kinnear is a, a journalist, a writer, but I think that it was each of the two of them that had the invite to the party. So I did get the sense it was that because I thought that the first time I was like, why are these people at this same party? But I think yeah. that was supposed to be the link, like some something bookish. Oh yeah, but my main point is like, you know, they're both at this party and nobody feels uncomfortable about being there. So like, if that tells you anything about publishing, um, just take that note. Uh, so they're in this party and he's like trying to hide from her because he doesn't want her to know. And he's like, he's trying to duck and dodge her. And then another party goer goes, I'm surprised to see you talking to Joe Fox. And she's like, what? Joe Fox, the guy who's about to put me, try to put me out of business. And so she like goes and she confronts him and she's like brandishing a knife at him, which is hilarious. Like she, she, she's doing it absentmindedly while she's talking, but like, clearly she is like, she's angry at this guy and she's got this knife and she's talking. And like, just as she's about to take a step toward him, uh, her boyfriend, Frank comes around, comes over and he puts his arm around her and she, he's like, oh, what's going on here? Who's this guy that you look like you're about to stab? And, (laughs) and she's like, this is Joe Fox. And then he starts to go off on Joe too. And that's when Parker Posey shows up at Patricia and she's like, oh, hey. And she like kind of dispels the whole situation with her own, like, because she's so self-centered. She's just able to like dispel this whole contentious situation and eventually turn this turn the conversation on to Frank, who she absolutely adores, uh, because apparently he's the, like, greatest, uh, uh, resource on Julius and, Ro- uh, Julius and Ethel Rosenberg, and, you know, there, and this is, def- this is still at a time where the Rosenbergs were actually held up as being 
very innocent. Um, and so that that's like supposed to be even more indicative of his politics. Um, and, you know, they're having this conversation and Kathleen is just still sitting there with that knife in her hand. <laughs> some meat like at this party there's just some like meat out for carving it's like I've never been to a party where there was just like a station where you carve some meat off of a turkey for yourself but maybe I just don't go to fancy enough parties yeah so that's why she's holding like a butcher knife yeah big carving knife I'm just trying not to go for his throat um and so then Joe wanders away and Kathleen follows him and they're having like this like little spat over the over like some crudite about like you know him misrepresenting himself to her and he's like I didn't lie to you I just withheld information from you and she is she is hot underneath the collar about this like completely and he starts to scoop up some caviar around the um something on the plate and she just goes off why are you taking the caviar that's garnish and he's like i don't care and he just like it's all of it all of it just so so petty so petty like like the biggest fuck you watch me take all this caviar and um frank marches her away and he goes off to patricia and he's like i hope you like caviar basically um and, you know, they, everybody has their night after that where, you know, she's just pissed off about this and he's pissed off about it as well. And we have this whole montage of them narrowly avoiding each other in all these places in the Upper West Side. Like he'll see her in a coffee shop and he'll duck out or she'll see him walking down the street and she'll go the opposite way because now that they know who each other are, they just don't want to be around each other. But meanwhile, they're still emailing each other back and forth unbeknownst to each other. Well, and one thing I love, because I think it first happened at the party, because I think it's part of her sort of arc, is um, he says something cutting to her. I don't remember what it is. Mm. And she doesn't know how to respond. And she's just silent. And then later on, when they're like, one of the things they're emailing about is she's like, you know, I hate this. I never can think of the the cutting thing I want to say back. Or... I was so I'm so sorry. There was something that fell in my cup. Are you okay? I'm fine. I'm fine. I just clearly we're all audio only right now, and this might get cut. But Allie just like flicked her hand wildly across the screen as I was like, "Whoa, you have a, a thought on this," and I know your thoughts on this movie, so I was ready for it. But um, but anyway, so um in their chat like she says I you know I never have the words to say it when I want to say it and he's Mm -hmm. like you know I always say the cutting things that come to me and then I regret it and so while you see him being this just like total asshole on the back end you see that conversation and for me like actually both of those points are really relevant that like Mm -hmm. cutting thing that you say and then you're like why did I say that just can I pull it back Um, But also that moment where you don't have the words and you feel sort of voiceless and powerless in that conversation. Um, Yeah. And the voiceovers, um, the letters do a lot to add in the pieces that I think are like sometimes missing um, in the actual movie where we get to see like their gooey parts um, that they don't necessarily expose to each other because I think 
I will give this movie credit to this much. A lot of what goes into this movie is basically saying what we present to the world is not necessarily who we are. And they get to be who they are when they're writing each other back and forth. Uh, and the voiceovers provide that like kind of sub that subterfuge of like their, their public images. Uh, but yeah, so yes, I completely, I completely agree with that. Um, and I can, and I totally forgot about the fact that, like, yeah, she never knows what to say. And like, she freezes up in that Meg Ryan way. She does, she's just like, like silent. She gets that like doe-eyed, like, uh, 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 like verbal yeah. constipation thing. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so we have the montage of them avoiding, narrowly avoiding each other. And then they're in line at Zabar's, which is mega new york uh hat tip right there uh and she's and she's been avoiding him so much that she doesn't realize that she wanders into the cash only line on thanksgiving day can we pause about there being a cash only line because that was really a, yes i made a, note of a card too. only line i don't even remember the last time i heard a cash only line i i made a note of that too like how how funny is it that we are 20 years later and cards are so prevalent that there are card only lines and cash only lines is not a thing anymore. No, like, and also a bit of trivia, if you haven't seen the movie in a while, the uh, the woman working the checkout counter uh, was Callie from Grey's Anatomy. Yeah, yeah, it's Sada Ramirez, yeah. She was, that, that kind of threw me off guard. I completely, I completely forgot she was actually in this movie. Um, there yeah. are a lot of actors that now, I, the later on, there's like a young kid working the children's section at Fox Books that I was like- And it's, yeah, it's Chris Messina from- uh, like, That guy's hot, who is this guy? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, uh, so yeah, so she's in the cash only line. She didn't realize it. And this is especially back when credit cards, it took forever for them to process. So that's why they had cash only lines. Um, and this is like just as credit cards where everybody having a credit card and a debit card was coming to be a thing. And so she's, and like I said, it's Thanksgiving. Everybody's just trying to get out of Zabar's. They want to get their crap and they want to go. And here's this dipsy broad who's trying to use a credit card in the cash only lane, like read a sign and everybody's doing their best New Yorker right here. Um, and you know, Rose at the cash register is just not having it. She's like, you're going to have to get out of line and go somewhere else. Frankly, though, at this point, she could have run the credit card and just been about her business. Also but <laughs> but at this point, you know, she's just like, I'm, I'm sure she's had to put her foot down like a few times. And again, it's Thanksgiving and it's a crazy, it's crazy in there. But Kathleen is like begging to use her Visa credit card that she's like waving all over the place. Thank you, product placement. Can and we talk about the product placement in this movie? Like <laughs> Starbucks, <laughs> super product placement, which I thought was interesting because it's about an independent bookstore and all about like corporate greed mm -hmm. being the bad guy. And then like Starbucks is all over in the Upper West Side where there must be a billion like local coffee shops or at least there were 20 years ago. Yeah, um, and uh, I, you know what though? The way I see it is because they had to pay to actually build Fox Books because they didn't like, they weren't able to find a Barnes and Nobles that would like let them film in there. So they took an old Barney's and they literally built a whole entire book from scratch. <laughs> <laughs> they built a coffee shop. They built like, they brought in like 7,000 books 
to fill the shelves. Like they built an actual bookstore. So Nora had to Nora had to pad her budget somehow and it's product. Okay, fair, fair. Because they they had to do something with the books. So maybe they donated them or something. Hopefully. I hope so. Uh so yeah, so she's at the front of this line and Joe's at the back and he's been trying to hide from her. But he's like, at this point, you know what? We need to get this line moving. He goes up to the front and he essentially charms Rose into letting her use the credit card. But the second Joe is gone, Rose is not still not happy about it. It's just like, just here, take your card. Like, we're not going to be friends. I was just nice to him. I, he, he managed to charm me, but we're not going to be friends. Take your card and go. And then we get a portrait of everybody's Thanksgiving. Uh, Joe is having like the stiffest uh, Thanksgiving where he's listening to his aunt sing the worst rendition. What was she singing? I can't even remember. I think it was the song from Annie, The Sun Will Come Out Tomorrow. That's right. She was singing Tomorrow on in her best little kid off pitch possible with an actual accompanist on a, on a grand piano. And it was kind of sweet. And then his, <laughs> uh, his, his soon-to-be mother, stepmother's like grabbing his leg. Yeah, because she once in his pants, um, like, you know, she focused, she like said, give me a kiss at one point and like kissed him full on the lips. Like, yeah, this whatever whatever marriage is about to happen is not gonna last with his dot with his dad. Um, so yeah, so he's having that awkward Thanksgiving, and meanwhile she's having like you know the rousing. Everybody's gathered around the piano singing some other song with Birdie playing, and it's all cozy and warm. Um, and so, you know, she's singing with like, she has her shop people over, like, you know, they're having a cozy, friendly one. Meanwhile, he's having like the performance of a child in like this grand place. So sort of like, we're kind of the same people, but we have a very different ways of going about it kind of situation. So one thing I actually kind of liked about that scene, the singing was awkward, but you <laughs> still saw like two iterations of family. Mm-hmm. Like even this, you know, big sort of obviously fancy apartment, like everybody was sitting together, like there was, you didn't see like contention, like there appeared to be like love in mm-hmm. that way, but that you saw families existing in this sort of two different ways and saw it represented two different ways, but it was still family. Yeah, I, I will give you that. It doesn't seem contentious and he never seems very contentious with his family. Like even his dad, you know, with his multiple marriages and the maniacal laughing and the greediness, <laughs> they, they do seem to like actually like each other. And there's like never any conversations about how I don't like anything about your life. It's just, it's, we we marry we screw around and we marry everyone we want um well that and you know the one trope I don't I don't even know if it's a trope I think it's just well maybe I guess it is a trope but um you know we have these um well-off characters who are the bad guys which works 100 percent uh but then we so often like do the kind of opposite of the the halo brush and then they have these horrible family lives or horrible mm-hmm. relationships and not that this delved into the nuance of this at all but I like it when we see our villains who are awful are not awful in all realms like mm-hmm. that have you know maybe have great relationships with their kids or have a good romantic relationship or whatever it is 
Uh, and that's a tangent. Cause again, I don't think this movie like really delves into that. It's not, <laughs> but I really love when <laughs> villains can be whole people. Yeah. And the thing, I think because we're not supposed to see him as a villain villain, I think that's the main reason why he has like kind of a nice family scenario, even though it's stuffy uh, in, in some respects, but it's supposed to be like, you know, it, it, they're kind of warm to each other. Um, so that's Thanksgiving. We get back from Thanksgiving and um, we're moving into the Christmas season and now Fox Books is opening and you know they're starting to actually see some pressure from it. One thing that I did, I didn't mention. So early on when the Fox Books is about to open, there's this author who like comes panicked over to the shop where she's like, you know, are, are, you guys, are you guys okay? Are you gonna be okay? We can fight the system, we can fight the bookstore. And you know, they ask her, well, are you gonna set up an author uh, showing, an author event here for your new book? And she's like, oh, the book's not even out till January. Will you even be here then? Uh, which is so like, like on one hand, like you're saying, we're gonna fight the system, but also you're not doing anything to support them either which makes her like kind of two-faced um and then when we get to Christmas time when they're starting to suffer a little bit we see Birdie walking down the street and she passes the Fox bookstore and there's that same author's picture talking about like how awesome Fox Books is in the window um there'll be a signing in January which was just like heartbreaking because I think even at the end of that she says yes but I'm definitely doing the signing with you and it'll be great and I'm here to support you and then you're just like Oh, that's like the end. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. So we get to the point where uh, Kathleen sits down with Birdie and, you know, they're like, well, what are we going to do? What would, what, what what's going to happen? Um, and so she starts talking to her, she sends an email to NY152, like, you know, asking, talk, complaining about things and wanting to like figure out what to do with her life. And he's like, I can offer some help. I'm a business guy. And he's like, what kind of business is it? And she's like, oh no, no specifics. Remember that. He's like, okay, well, you know, I guess then we're, you're going to have to go to the mattresses. And she's like, what is that? He's like from the Godfather. And that's kind of supposed to be like a clue to her, the Godfather, because back at that party, she and Frank had a little chat and he mentioned the Godfather. But you know what? She just glazes past it and just goes, what is up with guys in the Godfather? And he calls it the I Ching. And it's like, come on. I know guys like the Godfather, but like that, that slavishly devoted to the idea of the Godfather. Come on, guys. <laughs> I don't care. I don't, I've never, have I seen the movie? I might've seen the Godfather, but <laughs> Those were some of those, I wonder like if that, if I would have heard that differently, if I was a grown human the first time I saw the movie. I, I can understand that. Um, I, I think what she's trying to do, I, I, she does this, I, what I, my personal opinion about what she does with like a lot of these like little rants that the characters go on, it's definitely just like crap she's ranted about and she's found a way to put it into everything. And I am, so the one thing, um, so Nora Ephron's uh, husband in the end is the guy who wrote Goodfellas. And I, I swear 
at one point he must have ranted about this to her and she just decided to stick this on to joe fox because it is it's so it's so particular but so she he tells her to go to the mattresses and that you're gonna have to fight a little dirty and play a little rough and she takes it as um she takes the advice in in hand and she decides you know what yes i'm going to do this i'm going to fight for the livelihood of my bookstore and so they go and they like get people to protest and they're going to go and she has frank write a column about the bookstore and they're they're they get the new york the village voice to come out and interview her and newspapers and reporters come to interview her and she plays dirty um she plays real dirty it is so fantastic in one of the interviews she parrots back what joe said to her at the dinner party mm-hmm. which he talked about like being a superstore and why people buy discount and essentially compared his um compared the bookstore to price club and the books to olive oil and so when she's interviewed on camera she's like i've heard joe fox compare his shop to a price club and the books in it to olive oil <laughs> and then they cut to him but the only part of the interview they show is him saying i sell cheap books and then they <laughs> cut it off <laughs> I was like, <laughs> and when he sees it because he's like at the gym of dave Chappelle, and they're getting their morning run in and he sees that and dave turns to him and was like is that what you said he's like no i i said more eloquent things with that there's more than that oh my god and he's like he is like shocked that like she got him so good and the the way that everything characterized him it's just making him look at the bad like the bad guy and you know i get that the idea is to fight for your bookstore and making a big stink might like help the marketing but let's be real this is not the time to do it the bookstore is there it is thriving the time to do all this stuff should have been before the bookstore opened but i digress um so and she does learn she basically figures this out because even with all the publicity of all of this uh, their sales hasn't haven't changed one bit. You know they haven't gone back up to what their normal pricing, what their normal uh, profits are at that time of year. The uh, Fox Books is still like really impacting them, and so Kathleen turns to Birdie and she's like, "What would Mom want me to do?" And Birdie whips out this locket with a picture of her mom in it, and she talks it, and she's like. Well, what what would you like to do? And you know, she's like, well, I I don't have any opinions, but I do like blah blah blah. Um, but the thing about the locket and Birdie to me, because we never get a real clear relationship of who Birdie is to Kathleen. All we know is Birdie's been there forever, and she was close with her mom. And I wonder now because of that locket, because I love my friends, but I don't have any lockets with their pictures in it. I wonder if Birdie and her mom maybe were romantically related in in some fashion. Could be. I mean, they really only talk about Birdie's life ancillarily, that she was, I think we could have said she was married a couple times and she had some affair with, um, possibly, um, uh, uh, Franco. Yeah, <laughs> possibly hey. had a relationship the Spanish dictator maybe yeah and that was just a random sort of throw in and they're like what she's like oh don't even worry about it it was so long ago um but yeah I I do wonder if there's like this whole birdie storyline that got cut out because whether she was a best friend or they were lovers or they were in a relationship or an aunt or a cousin like we just don't know who birdie is 
but she's there and she knows everything and she basically runs the joint um and I do wonder too because like we never I don't think we ever heard anything about Kathleen's dad either so yeah I my personal theory is that Birdie and Kathleen's mom got together towards the latter part of Kathleen's mom life and they were together Uh, she's so lovely yeah that would have been lovely. That would have been a nice little storyline that, you know, Birdie isn't just like her surrogate mom. She basically was her other parent um, for her, her whole entire life. And yeah, her mom was her mom, but like, but anyways, that's not We're the writing story. like you've got male fanfic for Birdie. Point, <laughs> so. <laughs> you know what? I wonder if there is AO3 after this. Um, <laughs> okay. So Kathleen decides, you know what? She's tried, she's fought. Her heart really isn't in it. She really only kept the shop because, you know, she, it was her memory of her mom. And like, she wanted to have like that sort of same passing down the store from her to her own daughter, a daughter she doesn't have, as Joe points out earlier on. Um, And so like, she's just really holding on to it for that memory. So they're going to close down the shop. Oh, see, I read that differently. I don't think, I think she really loved it. Like, yeah like really loved the book and I when she decided to sell I think it was more pragmatic like I think so I think it was I think it was pragmatic but I I honestly think that the bookstore books and I think she loves books don't get me wrong I think she loves books she decides to write a book later on but I think the actual holding on to it is really like because she really talks about the books bookstore in terms of her mother because she as we'll find out in a little bit because she has a, uh, she runs into, when she arranges with NY152 to meet, um, she says to him, they might not remember me, but they'll remember my mother. I think it was that they, people do remember my mother, but yeah, that like a legacy, but I, I don't know, I always get the sense that like, I think that's something I love about the book is how genuine that loss felt, Mm -hmm. the loss of the bookstore and it was linked to her mother but also sort of like this idea of who she thought she was yeah yeah um yeah it's definitely linked to who she thought who she thought she was uh um but since I brought that up so before she actually officially decides to close the shop she does she does say she does arrange with NY152 to meet in person and they're supposed to meet at this little cafe and he's walking there with uh, Dave Chappelle and you know they're talking about is this wrong because clearly you know he's still in a relationship with Patricia Patricia has gone nowhere she's still scared yeah, okay. they are both cheating on their partners yeah. that is a <laughs> challenge of the film I will grant that <laughs> like keep forgetting to mention I mentioned Frank but you know she is still dating Frank he is still seeing Patricia uh and they agreed to meet and he says to he he says to Dave basically you know is he should he really be doing this and Dave is like you know what like let's let's take it one step at a time you know meet and decide if you really like this girl and if you really like this girl then go from there don't essentially don't blow up your whole life for somebody who you've just been talking with online if you see her in person and you just you're, you're disgusted by this human being and you don't want to be with them. So they just take it one step at a time. And so when they get to the coffee shop, which is like in this, uh, like basically in a, in a townhouse, uh, he's down on the ground. He's like, he's literally afraid to go up there to see. So he sends Dave to go look in the window for him. 
and he first jokingly describes like a really hot woman in there who isn't her and he doesn't see her at first but then a waiter moves out the way and he sees her and he's like uh you know what she kind of has the same coloring as that Kathleen Kelly girl and he's like oh okay I guess that's all right he's like uh yeah no she is that Kathleen Kelly girl basically like, if you don't like Kathleen, <laughs> like Kathleen Kelly, Kelly you're really not gonna, gonna like, like this <laughs> and he's like what huh and, and he's like so what are you gonna do are you gonna go in there he's like no no I'm gonna stay right here and Dave leaves and she's just sitting there like super forlorn and Joe decides to go in and be Joe not be NY152 he decides to go in and be Joe and she's like oh it's you what are you doing here I'm waiting for someone get out of my face and he sits down and he starts talking to her and just you know doing his best to annoy her and she finally delivers a line like she finally gets a good jab and she says what he has a cash register for a heart and a bottom line yeah a cash register for a brain and a bottom line for a heart or something like that yeah yeah cash register for a brain and a bottom line for a heart and he's like he's like actually wounded and she goes oh wait she's like she sell she literally celebrates the fact that she finally got a line out at somebody right there with him (laughs) while meanwhile he's like processing the hurt (laughs) the jab (laughs) I think what I like in that scene is that he's also like you see this flash of him recognizing because now he knows she's shop girl Mm -hmm. and then also knows from her from the last interaction they had but like this sort of like pride or recognition (laughs) that that was meaningful for her even why he's having this moment of like oh you just got my number yeah and And I think that's the first time we start to see, see him see those things about himself too yeah and I would say too that um and even though he's like processing like the jab she got in on him, he's actually got kind of proud of her too. Like he's slowly, he's like, he's, he slowly tries to recognize the pain essentially. He's like, no, it was mean, but it was good mean. And I am in awe of you essentially. Like, he, and she, and they kind of fight back and forth and he tries to leave the table. And that's when she says that bit about you know, he's talking about like your bookstore is, it's going to close. We won't be defeated, like even with all of this. And, you know, she has that moment where she's like, they might not remember me, but they will remember my mother. And, and he's like, just kind of quiet about it. And they go on about their way. Um, And that that's when after there, she decides to close the shop. And it's all kind of like sad montage of everybody coming in. And there's a woman who almost breaks down crying. And she puts the Kleenex box in the bag with her books. It's her, cause her mom had like given her, I forget which book it was. I think it was Anne of Green Gables. Anne of Green Gables. That's right. uh, Read it with a Kleenex box. Mm -hmm. And her mom gave her Kleenex. And so she gave her Kleenex when she was leaving and everything's so sad and them everybody's leaving and then we get that very last scene with her in the shop where there's nothing there but she sees sort of like the image of her as a little girl twirling with her mother and then 
she closes the shop for one last time. And as the door closes, we see the sign. Thank you for 42 years. And, and she takes the bell down. Like there's a bell on the door and she takes that with her. And you see her walking down the street with the bell in silhouette. Like that's for some of the directing things that I'm just like, oh. Yeah, like that, those all, little, all those little touches, those are very touching. And like, I like that, you know, she's sort of sadly walking down the street with that little bell. And it's like, well, like a lost little puppy. What's she going to do with her life now? Um, you know, she said she has some money saved up, but you know, that's it. That's all she has with her life right now. That's all she had been doing with her life. So then she goes out with uh, Frank one night and they're kind of like culminating everything that's going on and realizing basically that they don't belong together. Um, she says she admits to him that she didn't vote and she doesn't feel bad about it, which especially right now is. <laughs> he says like, I forgive you, which is just so like <laughs> indicative of like. Who he is. Okay. But that <laughs> is one of my favorite breakups in all of. Well, like, yeah, because. My favorite in that they're like, you're not happy and you're not happy. No, I'm not. Is there somebody else? I haven't acted on it sort of uh but it's just like this very like like they're just communicating and then realizing like okay you're still a good person and we're not going to be together and deuces yeah yeah it's very pragmatic how they break up um she's like the, he's about to say something and he's like I feel bad about it and she's like oh wait no I I don't think this works either he's like really it's like a sudden relief for both of them like why are we still fucking around and like yes you can leave me and take your typewriters too out of my house um, <laughs> at it. and we don't get to well we'll get to the next part but <laughs> um and you know they both like you know kind of admit that it's over and they're they're happy about it then right after immediately after that we get a scene where patricia and joe are uh going into an elevator and patricia is just chatting away and joe and she says something about uh wanting to hire uh wanting to hire Kathleen because no was it there because she's like all I think stupid. it was I think it was maybe before that that she said yeah because they're walking toward the elevator and she says like her name was in the air everybody wants to what? hire her can I hire her so what no that so that happens after because Kathleen goes to Fox Books because she's like kind of depressed one day and she just wants to see what killed her bookstore and she goes up to the children's section and she sits there and that's where we see Chris Messina because um, there's this woman trying to find a book for a kid and as everybody who's ever looked for a book they can't remember the title all they know is like one thing about it and they swear they hope that you can help them find it and this woman is like looking for the shoes book the shoes books like he's she's trying to find the shoes books and Chris is like fresh out of water like big eyes like what is going on here I don't know what this is about and Kathleen is sitting there just crying her eyes out and she's like the shoes books and she like actually rat rattles off like the whole title and you know the author and the whole she series spells the author's name for the guy and meanwhile Joe is watching this whole thing and just like yeah my sales associate know this yeah and I I understand what they're trying to do there, but like so many booksellers, people who work in books, they know everything. It doesn't matter if it's a small shop or if it's a big shop. Like they, if they're there for long enough, they learn these things. But anyways, I 
I, I take umbrage with that a little bit. Um, but so he's seeing her for that. And then he, I guess he's telling Patricia about that as they're walking to the elevator. And she's, she, then that's when she's like, oh, her name must be in the air. I was just thinking about her. And she's like, maybe I should offer her a job as an editor. She knows children, children's books. People respect her name, blah, blah, blah. And she makes this kind of callous joke about how they're basically, how he, she and Joe are basically the same person, like, you know, kind of cut, cut throat in business and, you know, are only thinking about the bottom line. And you can tell that doesn't kind of sit right with him. And then that, then they get stuck in an elevator. Well, because part of that, that I love too, the Parker Posey character is he's saying all this, like, she would never work for you. Like she basically, she's, you know, she's good and has that little shop and these people have worked for her forever. And Mm-hmm. And then she's like, I love how you've ignored how you're the one who put her out of business. And like, she <laughs> calls him on that. And again, it's that moment of him having to realize like sort of the human side of what they were cackling about at the beginning. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, it's very clear, like at this point, he's, he's starting to grow a heart um, and he doesn't any, I think he doesn't like the fact that, you know, she points out that, you know, they're both kind of callous people and they're exactly the same. And he's already starting to question us when the elevator seizes and they're stuck. And it's just him, her, a woman with a dog and the elevator guy. And it's super awkward. And they try jumping to start the elevator. Like, that's the stupidest thing in the world um and so we kind of flash forward with them like sitting on the ground and they're all like if I ever get out of here I'm gonna do this I'm gonna do that (laughs) it's so dramatic it's like guys if you didn't plummet to your death when you did that jump earlier you're not you're going to get out of there come on guys that Um, scene is so fantastic I like that scene though and the humor in it because it's like this meaningful I know I'm going to talk to my mom I'm going to propose to Marie I love her it's what I want and Pat's like I'm going to get eye surgery (laughs) also that but then Joe goes to say his and she cuts him off because she can't find her tic tac (laughs) it's just like okay let's talk there's your symbolism in a a yeah that's this relationship and so we basically we don't actually see it happen but we see him kind of process like okay this is over because the very next thing we see is him moving to the boat (laughs) and um we're back to writing uh letters to each other because after he him not showing up and standing her up at the coffee at the coffee shop you know he kind of went dark for a while and I totally missed that scene because that one was kind of funny because the day after everybody was like did he show up did he show up oh and yeah they're, like, they're coming up a serial killer or a <laughs> married or yes well like what I liked about it is like her and the um female shop uh, shop assistant she's like they're coming up with like all of these romantic reasons why he couldn't have been there like you know he was in a train accident or he got held up or he was like in traction in the hospital and he can't type you can't type so he can't email you to let you know why he's there and meanwhile the guy George he's like here's the paper a serial killer was caught and it was just a couple of blocks from where you were supposed to meet <laughs> spoke to me like how many times in my life I've sat around with girlfriends and I'm like well this is probably why he didn't call or you know this is probably the reason that happened that like justification 
that so many of us have done in our lives of like, no, like you got ghosted. Yeah. Yeah. Basically. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, so he's living on his boat now cause he moved out and he's back to uh, emailing shop girl. And, you know, he's being, you know, saying like, you know, he broke up after they got out the elevator being trapped in her trapped in the elevator with her for like an hour and he's living his life and she's moved out um she's broken up with frank and she's just like kind of like at a loss with what to do with her life and we see joe on his boat and then his joe's dad shows up (laughs) and it turns out that his wife his new wife has left him for the nanny which is funny because he had left joe he had left joe's mother and a bunch of other wives because of the nanny so and the funny thing is that he didn't realize they were the nanny so he's saying well i left your mother for the ice skater and yeah. joe's like my nanny he's like really <laughs> huh that's ironic and then and i the left ballerina for the astrologer also my nanny really <laughs> that's incredibly ironic so where did Jillian go with the nanny <laughs> so for once it turned out as fair play and you know they're just kind of having this like very nice heart to heart about like why do we even try uh with these women if you still keep getting your heart like beat in or like you know nothing ever lasts and you know he just like comes to the conclusion that you know you have to try love is love and don't be so cynical about it and so joe decides that he's going to go talk to kathleen and he gets her favorite flower daisies what she remembered from the handkerchief that his that her mother had made her and she is sick and doesn't want to see him I do love in that moment that the thing he remembered to be personal about was something that they had shared in person versus Mm -hmm. the subterfuge of online. So it wasn't just like, oh, I know your favorite food because you told me on the internet, even though you don't know you told me that, but it was something that was from their in-person interactions. Mm -hmm. It was from their in-person, in-person interaction. And he, he got like, perfect like little white daisies like a perfect bouquet and like you know he's trying to talk to her through the intercom and she's like I'm sick I have a fever I don't I don't want to see anybody right now and he just gets so lucky that one of her neighbors is coming out so he's able to duck in and she's just sitting there talking to the street about all her symptoms over the intercom okay let's talk about watching that scene in the times of COVID where someone's like I have a fever and then like their Kleenex is everywhere and you're walking into the their house and I was like oh you about to die Joe Fox (laughs) (laughs) I will be honest like so I've been watching so many of these movies over the last month and a half and this is the first movie where like I had any kind of flinch about pre-COVID times like when she opens up the bookshop earlier in the movie and like nobody puts on a mask and nobody's (laughs) wearing a mask. This is the first time. And I'm also watching, and like I was watching this and Notting Hill like kind of interchangeably because they're both movies I'm not crazy about. So I was like breaking one with the other. And that that was the bookstore movie too, but I didn't get freaked out about that. Just something about this tiny little bookshop in her life when without seeing anybody wear a mask, like it freaked me out. Like, why isn't anybody wearing a mask? Are you afraid of getting sick? But yes, 
yeah, him just barging in on her sick. Um, and, you know, he knocks on the door, freaks her out. He goes in and they're talking and, you know, she's just being, she's all like messy. She's stuff, stuffing tissues in a trench coat pocket. She's like trying to pick up because obviously she's a total slob uh, when she's sick. And, you know, he's trying to be, he's trying to be nice to her. And I think he, I think he originally went over there with the intentions of being honest about things. But as they started to talk, he decided, no, <laughs> he's going to keep up the charade for a little bit longer. Um, and they're kind of, they're, he kind of like makes groundwork for being friendly with her. Um, but then on the other side of things, he's talking to her still on, over internet and uh, over email. And he says, I would, they're trying to, they're going to try and meet again. He says, I want to meet, but I'm working on a project that I still need to tweak, which, oh, that gets my hackles up because she's the project he needs to tweak because. Okay, the wording there was weird. I'll grant you that. <laughs> because he is running into her continuously throughout like all this whole time. Um, uh, he like, he arranges basically to run into her a bunch. And then eventually it goes from arranging to running into her to them like actively hanging out together. Meanwhile, you know, he's like, he's like pushing her to ask him if he's married and on in person, he's like, I don't know. He didn't yeah, answer that, that question. <laughs> At that point, and it really, when I first saw this movie, cause I've seen this movie a thousand times, but I hadn't watched it in years and years and years. And so watched it again last night before I chat. And some of those things definitely bothered me now that I didn't really pick up on last before. time. Also from a pacing standpoint, that felt sort of like a long denouement. Like yeah, yeah. The connection, a... the store closed, they had the reunion, and then it was just this like slow dating, catfishing, falling in love. Yeah. out that for me was a little bit long knowing a little bit more about pacing but I also mm -hmm. still love some of those little moments that they have yes there there are very it, they're, they do have some very cute moments where it shows them getting to know each other more so in person and being coming more um, comfortable with each other in person but I don't like that he was still emailing her while this was happening and like basically it it just felt a little too gaslighty for me <laughs> like he's talking to her in person but then like on email he's like planting the seeds for different stuff like I I'm uncomfortable with that but anyways we get to the point where they've set a date in a place to meet and she tells him that you know she's going to finally meet him. He's like, oh, he could be anybody. He could be that guy. He could be that guy. He could be somebody you see every day, which is clearly him. And they kind of have this like sort of, sort of sad moment on the stairs about like her expectations for this guy. And, you know, she's just like really hopeful and she goes into the house. And the next moment we see her come right back out in the lovely outfit. I really like that dress and sweater that she's wearing. In the end. It's very, <laughs> I mean, it's very, very, very rom-com wear something nice run to the guy thing. Um, but I, I love, I love that little outfit she's wearing and she goes to the park. I dislike the outfit she's wearing before that, the khaki pants that are like 19 sizes too big. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Like yeah, tied no, with I, a rope. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I know. I didn't like that. Um, but what she wears to meet the guy she's in love with um, is really sweet. Uh, and so she's standing in the park, like 
just confused and looking around and looking over the hedges. And then we see here comes his little dog running up and we hear him yell for the dog and she knows the dog's name. And so she looks for the guy and then she sees him and she's smiling like, oh, it's you. And then she's like kind of confused, it's you. But then he comes over and she's happy. And she's like, I had been hoping that it, it would be you. And like, ah. And she, they, they kiss and everything's hunky-dory. But like in real life, we know he would have gotten a throat punch, right? <laughs> Depends how thirsty she gets for Tom Hanks. <laughs> I'm sure somebody is. <laughs> I'm sure somebody was 20 years ago anyway. Well, somebody is now, I'm sure. Oh, yeah. Um, but yeah. And so, yeah, that is, that is, you've got mail. So <laughs> um, let's talk about what you like. <laughs> so clearly... There are definitely a lot of problematic things. We did not even touch on the like little random casual bits of racism that are popped in there. Um, they're not everywhere, but they're very specific in the few times you see or hear about people of color that you're like, what? <laughs> okay, that's why. Um, and like we've talked about some of the other things here, I guess is why this movie spoke to me when I first saw it and always has a place in my heart. Okay. It is the... Um, the AOL, like I was in the AOL kid generation. I actually posted on Twitter earlier today that I, I was the boss at Away Messages when AIM came along. But oh my, I like, still have, I still have like a word document of all my Away messages. Yeah, I, I dug mine up and I just posted some on Twitter like two hours ago before we started talking. So, <laughs> like that for me was a, a generational like a touch point because. Like I, you know, I had friends in school and this was really, I think about like high, high school time mm -hmm. is when this came out and when this was, was there and I had friends and all of that. But for me, my first loves were some guys I met online mm. and actually funny story, this was not a love thing, but I met a guy in a chat room when I was 14, which she talks about, like I stumbled into the over 30 room and <laughs> about that. I, also that these characters are older. They're not in their like, tw they're not 22 as rom-com characters, which I think yeah. is random. Um, but I stumbled, I was in like a 14 year old chat room and I met this guy and we started talking and we talked all summer. We talked all the time. We are still Facebook friends. I have never met him in person. Uh, <laughs> But we have written some letters like we have we shared emails for years we don't talk that much now but um you know like we're still connected in that way like on facebook and so that idea of a relationship starting in that place mm -hmm. and growing there spoke so much to me of the possibility of that and that that's where i don't think that now but i thought then like i was always a fat kid and a fat adult and teenager and, you know, living that life now. Um, but for me, it felt like that was so limiting of love stories. Mm -hmm. And fat rep is not in this movie. Um, no, in fact, but, there's a really gross tirade that he goes on about maybe the guy is fat for like five minutes, which I really hated. For me at that age, when I first saw this, like online is where you could, you know, somebody could see your personality and you could get to know them and like that love was possible. And so like that to me... I remember walking out of the theater when I saw this the first time and having that like resonance with it. And so like that story, that idea of meeting someone online and getting to know them, you know, in such a deep way, 
was such kind of a novel idea. When did this come out? Like 97, 98? 98. 98. Like Like that was so novel, but I felt like I was living that life. Like I had Mm -hmm. good friends, deep love affairs, which I don't know (laughs) what that deep in retrospect, but they felt it at the time, Um, you know, through this online, online platform. And I kind of loved that this spoke to that. The set, when I watched it again last night, aside from identifying again, all the problematic things is that <laughs> I liked her arc of going from literally voiceless to fighting. Mm-hmm. And I sort of loved that she didn't win the fight. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I don't love that the little bookstore went under, but I love that as a character that she didn't win the fight. Like she found her voice and she still lost. And then she found another way to use her voice. Mm -hmm. as kind of a broad strokes thing as she looked at like sort of the possibilities of what she could do. Um, And then his, I think was more subtle because we don't actually see him get his comeuppance. Mm. Like you kind of want to see him like, yeah, buddy, Amazon's around the corner. Um, But (laughs) that wouldn't have taken her out too. But um, I don't think we see his comeuppance, but I think we do see him grow in some way in terms of acknowledging his own um, eh, not guilt. He's like midway through his arc, but he starts to yeah. see some of his own behaviors and like have some of that realization. And I really like that. Yeah. Um, I don't think he feels bad about his business sense, but I think he feels bad about his interpersonal sense. Um, and I think he kind of grows from that. And he brings up earlier then, because they have this whole conversation about it. He says like, you know, it wasn't personal, it was business. Um, I actually replicate that in a story I'm working on now, this idea that that comes up and this idea and then you dissect that and what that means and mm-hmm. she kind of calls him on it that just means it wasn't personal for you um anyway so I kind of like that but the the really it's the platform it's the idea of their online and developing these deep relationships and that is spoke to me when I was however old 16 probably when this came out um, and that for me is why it always sticks with me, even though I could see like all the issues with it. Cause yes, like everybody, this is like the whitest New York I've ever seen. I have never yeah. lived on the Upper West Side. I suspect it's not quite that white, although probably yeah. parts of it are, um, yeah. <laughs> or segments of populations are, um, you know, the things around class and the, there's all of those things now, I think that are that are embedded in that. So for me, the, the romance of it that always really spoke to me is the platform. Yeah, they find this this romantic space online and really get to know this other person just because again I've had those experiences and that that's why it has always stuck with me well like it's uh it's really funny um because I know I mentioned uh Notting Hill but like I kind of started reading um spoiler alert while I was watching this and so kind of like that idea of like hidden personality hidden from somebody mostly relationship built online is is in there too and that kind of like popped into the back of my head like while I was watching this again I'm like oh so it's possible um (laughs) in a book but like let's actually look at it from a book standpoint like if we were to turn you've got mail into a book what what would you personally um amplify or yeet into yeet out of existence instead (laughs) of um what what's actually in there like how would you reframe this as a book I think is I guess what I'm getting at um like if it was a book 20 years ago like this book 20 years ago or like if I were making it into a book like now let's say for good just good storytelling purposes (laughs) if you were making it now uh yeah let's say now as I say um 
well, let's correct most of the things we've talked about um, <laughs> in terms of <laughs> just drop the microaggressions and that have no place in the story and things along those lines. Mm -hmm. um, AOL isn't really a thing anymore, but actually I thought a lot about, because I'm listening to Spoiler Alert right now, the audiobook, mm -hmm. um, and I think there are many like epistolary type over email yeah is out there so those are those are written now um if i were rewriting it those other relationships would probably end a little sooner <laughs> and i think that's just the i think it was real the way it was in that you know you can have these romantic relationships and then these online things get bigger like i think that happens that could be in reality but for a romance, yeah, I'd probably end those relationships a lot sooner um, as things are still in a friendly place versus a, hey, I love you. Let me break up with my boyfriend space. Yeah. Um, what I liked that this did that I think would translate well to books because I've read it done well in books is that the, the communication online speaks to what's happening in the story. Mm. Um, so... I've read some where you just get a chunk of epistolary and then you get the story. Like uh, Mariana Zapata's Dear Aaron is the first one I remember. Mm -hmm. that was like that where it's the letters and the emails for like half the book and then you get into that, the people doing things. Um, mm -hmm. I like that less than when it's interspersed so that the, cause I think then you could open chapters with uh, snippets of conversation that then inform what's gonna happen in the chapter. Like I'm doing that in, a, in my second book, there's something kind of like that um so let's see I think there's that um I love that we get this picture of New York again I've never I lived in Westchester County for like three months but that is the extent of my New York living and so <laughs> so much of the you know what's in movies and what's in books is this sort of certain picture of a place yeah we just don't know so I I would move it somewhere else honestly like mm. A, a city where people feel like they don't know it as much, I think lets you share the city a little bit more. Mm. If that makes any sense. Like I think like New York is written about so often. Yeah, I, I think because like in the movie, um, like I said, Nora Ephron is very specific in how she directs and how she sets and characterizes like the setting. And I, I, I enjoy that about her as a director. Um, and I think she does a very good job of evoking at least the sense of what her New, New York looks like. Um, and she does it very well. And I like that. But like you said, like in a book, um, it, it, it wouldn't come through as well. And I think it would to the detriment of the characters in the story. Um, and the because the community is kind of like an, another character, you need to set it in a place where you can build that build that out better um in writing I completely agree yeah um so yeah I, you know and I think about like you know what if it's set in Chicago what if it was set in Houston or San Francisco or you know like there's other places that you would have that same probably political dynamic of a mm -hmm. chain bookstore coming in I don't know I don't know anything about a lot of those places but you know there's some of those <laughs> dynamics where where that could happen um I do <laughs> have to explore more today about the online subterfuge because that's so much more of a known thing now the mm -hmm. catfishing whereas in 98 it was it, you know you could sort of look at it like oh look how cute and quirky that was now it's like yeah, that's creepy um so I think you'd have to have less of that or have a better defense of it yeah 
does the whole tweaking thing, we don't really get a rationalization in his head of why he's doing that. Um, and we could guess like he wants to make a better impression in person or whatever. But I think if that were to be kept, you'd need a stronger internal argument. Mm -hmm. Maybe that's where Dave Chappelle could come back because he sort of just fell off as confidant um, and yeah. to be a conscience on the shoulder or something like that. I don't know. Um, but I, I do think something like this could translate into a book that would be engaging. I think there's some modernizing and some representation pieces that could be taken in interesting ways. Mm -hmm. I think too, that idea of, I love that it starts in that independent bookstore. Like, is there a way you write that story where the store wins um, or that you have more of a commentary on that dynamic? Cause I mm -hmm. would have loved the other 20 minutes where we see, you know, what does that look like when he goes back to his office? Like he talks about hiring one of um, Kathleen Kelly's employees to run his children's section and mm -hmm. then how that has strengthened kind of what is expected with the staff and like loving books and kind of bringing it back to that. Um, yeah, I wish I wish we had gotten a better picture of what Kathleen's life is like after the bookstore um, and her decision to write a book. Like, excuse me, she mentions that Joe gives that, well, NY152 kind of gives her the idea to write a book. It would have been more helpful if we saw her like actually starting to delve into that process. Instead, we just get more shots of them just like kind of strolling around the Upper West Side. Like and... buying flowers. I'm like, where are you putting all these plants? <laughs> yeah. I'd love to see that, like that her starting the book or her like brainstorming ideas. I don't, I don't know if that translates better to a book than it would have on film, but that idea of the epilogue. Yeah, yeah, I, I would have enjoyed that. And I think if it, if it were a book, that def, that part would definitely be explored a lot more and to the, to the betterment of the characters and showing her finding her voice, that arc that you're talking about, because it does kind of get dropped in the movie yeah. um, for the sake of her building this relationship with in real life Joe. Um, and if we had like actually seen her like actually like move into being an author and you know maybe like a snippet of her like having a meeting with Patricia as an author as opposed to as an employee you know that that, that would have been something that I would have liked for Kathleen I just I feel like we just lose that bit of her arc because of that because we have this 20 minute denouement of them strolling around the Upper West Side yeah the slow ease out I did was there were some sweet moments in there and there were some funny moments in there but I was also like what character like where where are we in the story arc but whatever I mean, you made your money like it's <laughs> the, the rom-com yeah I mean whatever. I get I think I think what she's trying to do is like kind of like the opposite montage of them avoiding each other uh more like the them running into each other and just actually being together and enjoying each other so I get that I just it's in a weird place for me um, it, it just kind of slow, yeah, it slows down the ending. The other thing I would love to see is sort of the trope like kind of thrown on its head and like NY, well, how would I throw that on its head? I'd love to see her be the one in the corporate space. Mm -hmm. In so much of this movie, he's the one with the power. Mm -hmm. And so like, let's knock that around a little bit. I, um, you, you know what I would have liked? I would have liked if um, she had to have she was the, the, now this big author and she needed to have a book signing and he came to the signing, but like after, 
after she's had like her moment in the sun, that's when he introduced himself. Not like something crazy public and like awful, but like, you know. Oh, yeah but like if like she had her big signing and you know she had to do it at fox books and maybe like he had uh, acquired some of like the fixtures from shop around the corner and had redone the children's section with it and so she could have her story reading there and he like had the damsel cap for her and like something that would like be more indicative that he is in y152 instead of this running in the park crap you really hated this movie I am not a fan of this movie Denise that's okay because we can still be friends because we both didn't like Sleepless in Seattle I did like Notting Hill I didn't love it but I did like it but that's okay oh Richard Curtis is another uh soapbox I can get on for days but that's not today you know so much for me with these especially these rom-coms that are older yeah like that it's different for me when I watch them now but the ones for me, they take me back to the place I was when I saw them, which I think is true for so many people with books. I think people talk about like problematic faves for books like all the time. Um, but I really go back to that headspace I was in when I first watched them and first loved them and first saw myself in them or didn't. Um, and when I think about like the, the ones that I love that I could go back and watch or that I still, you know, I have memories of the lines. It's mm-hmm. so much that they take me back to that place. So let's talk about you. Uh, what's going on with you? So you have this new book coming out, right? Yeah, yeah. So How to Felt Flirting comes out in my son's doing a paper chain downstairs. I think it's 45 days. Um, so on December 1. So I'm a little excited. It's my debut novel. Um, and, you know, I wouldn't necessarily say that it's a rom-com. I know sometimes it's it's labeled that and it has an illustrated cover. And I think it's funny. Um, but the premise of it really is not humorous mm-hmm. um or the the core plot isn't humorous i think it's funny people who are in this romantic situation and kind of growth situation but mm-hmm. um i am really excited for that to be out into the world and really nervous for that to be out into the world but uh that is my my book baby the first book i ever wrote uh and then my second one will be out um next next fall which has some of these um uh, pistolary kind of letter writing well they're not letters it's like talking on an app um pieces to it which I'll be really excited about in the coming year cool um, yeah that that's what's going on with me in a, in a book world I also work at a university and so just dealing with everything that's about uncertainty at universities right now yeah I I do not envy people who especially have to like work directly with students right now it's it's a rough, it's a rough life, but um, where can people find you online? Uh, I'm active on um, Twitter and Instagram at Nick Will Writes, N-I-C-W-I-L-L Writes. Uh, I am on Facebook, but not that actively. I am not on <laughs> AOL Instant Messenger. Uh, <laughs> it's unfortunately dead, but we, uh, I miss AIM. I miss <laughs> But yes, yeah, so that's where people can find me, not on AOL, but in all the other places. Um, and yeah, especially working from home right now. I'm, I'm pretty active on there. <laughs> I see a lot of photos of my home because I don't really go anywhere else besides work. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm excited for the, the book to come out and to, to share it with folks. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Denise, for coming on. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for having me. If we chat again, you can pick the movie. <laughs> Hope you enjoyed the episode. Be sure to leave a review on the Apple Podcast Store. 
Also, if you'd like to follow the podcast on Twitter and Instagram, you can find it under Rom Ever After on both platforms. And if you wish to just follow me for other randomness, you can catch me at Ali is Writing on both platforms as well. Until next week, 